Well, for the past two weeks, we've been in a short little series in Mark chapter 2. And we've been exploring kind of some questions that Jesus is confronted with um, as he begins his earthly ministry. The, the Jesus that we encounter in the scriptures is perhaps different than some of the modern uh, versions that we find today where Jesus gets somewhat domesticated. The Jesus of scripture was enigmatic. He was provocative. He was, as John, John Stott described him, a controversial figure. And as he began his ministry, he was met with a lot of questions. And so two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus provoked the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus came along and revealed himself as more than a rabbi, more than a teacher, even more than a miracle worker. Jesus showed himself to be the divine son of man who has the authority to forgive sins. Last week, Pastor Brett helped us to see that Jesus also revealed himself as a friend of sinners. And, and his ministry was a scandal to the religious leaders who came and asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Their, their version of, of religion was to, to isolate and to separate from sinners. But Jesus sat down at tables with sinners. He didn't come, he said, for those who believe they're doing okay. He came for those who know that they're sick. This morning we encounter two more questions for Jesus. In, in verse 18 of chapter 2, he gets asked this question. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then in verse 24, he's hit with another question where the Pharisees asked Jesus about his disciples, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I want you to notice that these questions deal with behavior. The question about fasting deals with the behavior Jesus' disciples aren't doing. And then the second deals with the behavior that the disciples are doing that the Pharisees believe they shouldn't be doing. And both of these questions are really related to the religion of Jesus' day. It's, I think it's helpful to remember here that Jesus was a Jew. That Christianity was really birthed out of the Jewish religion. And as such, his life and his ministry had a distinctly Jewish flavor. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who taught using the, the Jewish or the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, what we refer to as the Old Testament. And his earthly ministry took place in the, the geographical context of Israel. And so for these reasons, on the surface, Jesus appeared very similar to other Jewish teachers and religious groups of his day. And many perceived him in that vein, simply as another Jewish rabbi in Israel. I mean... Some people today still intend on seeing him that way as just another religious teacher, maybe one among many. But that's not at all how Jesus reveals himself. That's what we've been seeing in this series. He insists that his life and his teachings are a whole new thing, that there's something altogether different. And as a result, Jesus' life and teachings defied the expectations of the religious leaders because they broke with the norm. 
Jesus confounded the Pharisees. In fact, one of the the developments that we find in this chapter, in Mark chapter 2, is is that Mark depicts the swift escalation of hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders. Right? It begins with them. We saw this two weeks ago as Jesus claims that he has the authority to forgive sins. And it says that they murmured in their hearts, saying, who has that kind of authority? So it starts with a murmuring in their hearts. But by chapter 3, verse 6, it tells us that the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians. They were actually enemies of one another. And they come together and they, 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 they're trying to, to figure out how they're going to kill Jesus. So by chapter 3, verse 6, they're ready to get rid of Jesus. And their distaste really centered around Jesus' departure from the common traditions of the day. In the Mosaic Law, there was really only one mandated fast for the people of God, which took place on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On that day, on the Day of Atonement, everyone in Israel was to fast all day. And in addition to this fast, there were occasions that we find in the Old Testament where the people might be called to a fast, say for a national tragedy or for a crisis. Sometimes there was a special call to prayer and the people would fast. And even beyond that, there were times when individuals in Israel would fast for personal reasons. And so it's not that the Day of Atonement was the only day that Israelites ever fasted, but it was the only mandated day. It was the only required day of fasting in the entire law. But somewhere along the way, these religious groups in Israel began to add fasting to their calendar as a regular practice. The Pharisees were known in particular to fast every Monday and every Thursday. And John the Baptist, you know, he had disciples before Jesus came, and some of them were still around, and apparently they were doing something like the Pharisees or something similar. Theologian James Edwards explains that fasting had become in Jesus' day a prerequisite of religious commitment. That it was, it was just the thing that you did if you were serious about your faith. If you were a serious practicing Jew, then you were supposed to fast. And so you can imagine the surprise on the Pharisees' faces when they came along on a Monday and found Jesus and his disciples having a picnic. Like, what is going on here? You're supposed to be fasting. It's Monday. Or maybe they saw Jesus and his disciples going through the drive-thru on Thursday. And they come and they ask the question, Jesus, why aren't you and your disciples fasting? The implication is that they ought to be fasting. Jesus, why aren't you doing the religious thing? Don't you take God seriously? Don't you want him to be happy with you? Or are you not as religious as we are. In the next section, another question arises. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. And as they walk through the field, his disciples are apparently hungry, and they begin to pluck the heads of grain and eat them and just pop them in their mouth as they walk through the field. 
But it just so happened that their journey was taking place on the Sabbath, on a Saturday. And according to the Pharisees, they were doing what was forbidden. God had commanded the people to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. It was the fourth commandment. God's people were invited to rest on the last day of the week. It was a day of renewal and recuperation. But the Pharisees took this commandment and and they took it to the extreme. And so to ensure that the Sabbath was kept... They fenced the Sabbath in with all kinds of clarifications and rules that specified what actually constituted resting and not working. And so, for example, they said that you couldn't take more than 1,099 steps on the Sabbath. That 1,100 step was a step too far, and you had violated the commandment. You also couldn't harvest grain. Because that was considered work, and working on the Sabbath was prohibited. So walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, plucking heads of grain and popping them in your mouth, that was a no-no to the Pharisees. And so they come to Jesus with the question, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, before we dive into Jesus' response to these questions, I think we should pause here and make some observations about how religion operates. And I think we need to see this because I think we have a proclivity toward religion. All of us, innately, run to some version of works righteousness as a basis of our reception and acceptance by God. And so it's easy to criticize the Pharisees in this passage, but we're more like them than we want to admit. And so I want us to notice how they are approaching things to see if these are tendencies also in us. We'll see three things here. We'll see that religion is rooted in performing, comparing, and rule following. Performing. We see the Pharisees with a proclivity toward a performance-based approach to God. I don't know if you grew up in the church, but I grew up a good Southern Baptist boy. And I went to Sunday school which meant that we had these poster boards in our Sunday school classes. Somebody had taken a ruler and a Sharpie and made a nice big chart with. And every Sunday we showed up, we got a gold sticker by our name. And if we showed up for 10 straight Sundays, there was a goodie, like a a treasure box that we got to reach our hand into and pull a goodie out of. Anybody else grow up in a sticker chart Sunday school classroom? Yeah? Good to know I'm not the only one. The Pharisees had essentially turned fasting into a gold sticker chart approach to God. On Monday, I fast. 
On Thursday, I fast. I'm building up my stickers, and the reward is coming. They made fasting into an obligation, a duty, rather than an opportunity. See, at the heart of fasting is, is the pursuit of God. It is this intense measure aimed at drawing near to God, seeking the heart of God. It's, it's more than a practice to be performed, right? When, when we fast, it's more than a ritual. You fast by setting like food or something essential aside to say that God is even more essential. God, I need you more than food. God, I need you more than this thing in my life that is essential, that is crucial to living. And so you deprive yourself in order to depend on God and devote yourself to him. It's this very intimate thing. You lay something down to take God up and intentionally seek his heart. But that's lost here on the Pharisees. Notice that they're not concerned with why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Jesus is going to get to that in a minute. Their only concern is that they're not doing it. And this is what religion does. Religion tends to focus on what to do or not do, maybe even how to do it, but not why you do it. Do you know that there's a way of doing all the right things for the wrong reasons. Pastor John Stark calls it performative spirituality. He says, we have internalized the belief that our deepest happiness will come from being who others think we ought to be. We have been shaped to perform for likes, but we do not know how to be loved. And this is exactly what Jesus deals with in Matthew chapter 6 when he, when he cautions disciples, beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen by them. Beware of performing. Whenever you fast, Jesus says, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. Why are they gloomy? So that everybody knows that they're fasting. They disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. There's your sticker. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others. But go to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is inviting us to a way of living not focused on showing off how spiritual we are. Not playing the game of performing to impress others, but drawing near to the heart of God and letting the Father himself be our reward. Instead of getting lost in performance, Jesus invites us to press toward the purpose of our religious actions, which is to know God. Number two, not only performing, but these religious leaders got lost in comparing. I want you to pay attention to what is happening in this passage. People come to Jesus with a question. But their question isn't about understanding Scripture. Their question isn't about Jesus' interpretation of a text or a teaching. Their question is this. How come your disciples aren't doing what John's disciples are doing? How come your disciples aren't doing what the Pharisees are doing? They are comparing Jesus and his disciples to the Pharisees and John's disciples. 
And see, that's what religion does. Religion plays the game of comparison. It is easy for us to begin to seek our righteousness in outperforming others, thinking that as long as we measure up to the person next to us, we're doing okay. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18 about two men who found themselves in the temple. He says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Notice what the Pharisee is doing. He's comparing his life to other people. And the problem with this sort of approach is that the standard of righteousness then becomes another person when the reality is our standard is always the moral perfection of God. The Apostle James reminds us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point, he's become guilty of all. That the standard is perfection. And it doesn't matter if you stack up against your neighbor because you fall short of the glory of God. And isn't it interesting in this story that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus says that it's the tax collector, the blatant sinner, that went home justified. Why? Because he didn't seek acceptance by God on the basis of his performance, on the basis of his comparison to anyone else. No, he didn't look to himself at all. He looked away from himself. He, he pleaded to God for mercy. He, he said, God, I need a righteousness I don't have. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's got to be on the basis of your grace. It can't be on the basis of my, my goodness. And so he received the mercy of God. While the Pharisee continued to trust in himself and to trust in his own righteousness and to compare himself to others. And he remained lost in his self-righteousness. Where are you looking for acceptance with God? Are you looking within? Are you playing a game of comparison, thinking that as long as you deem yourself better than others, that you're okay? Or are you looking away from yourself completely and casting your hope fully on the mercy of God that is given through his son, Jesus? Scripture tells us that Abraham believed God. He trusted. And it was counted to him as righteousness. The righteous live by faith, not comparison. The third thing we see here is that not only did they succumb to performing and comparing, but thirdly, to rule following. When the Pharisees confront Jesus about his disciples plucking the, grains, the heads of grain and eating them as they traveled, they're, they're essentially accusing Jesus of, of breaking the law. 
The essence of the Sabbath command was, was twofold, really. One was, it was a distinguishing characteristic of the people of God. It made them unlike the other nations. An entire day set aside to worship and not work made them different than the surrounding people. And it was also a day of rest and recuperation. The command was not intended to be burdensome. It, it, it was intended as a gift, an invitation into relationship with God. God is saying, take the day off, spend time with me, trust me to provide, be still. This, was, was at, this, this is what was at the heart of the command. And this is why Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But what religion does is it loses sight of the big picture and turns things upside down. These religious leaders took a gift and made it a burden. They perverted an invitation of relationship into a bunch of rigorous rules that had to be followed. The Pharisees especially were known for these rules. One commentator explains that believing that the Old Testament, the Torah, was prescriptive for all of life, the Pharisees wove an increasingly intricate web of regulations around it. And that intricate web was actually 613 rules that they created to define and to hem in the law of God. It was their way of, of, of explaining and setting parameters around the law to make sure that they were crystal clear on what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And, and this was to ensure that they were doing it right at all times. This is what religion does. It makes rules. And it says the way to God is to keep the rules. In religion... You obey the law to be assured that God will accept you. Religion says this, if I perform, if I obey, then God will be happy with me. Pretty much every religion in the world operates out of this same basic notion that the way to relate with God is by being good. Now the rules might be different depending on the system. But the fundamental belief is the same. I perform for acceptance. If I pile up my good works, if I stay away from the bad things, hopefully God will give me his approval. And can't you see, can't you see that no matter the system, that kind of approach always leads to anxiety. The default emotion of religion is anxiety. I wonder if you walked in here anxious this morning, worried that you're doing enough or not doing enough. See, in religion, you're always performing. You're always on the treadmill of rules, and you're always, therefore, on the verge of failing. This is one reason, by the way, why the Pharisees can't understand Jesus at all. Because he's never anxious. There's a great story about Dallas Willard in a room of a bunch of thinkers and theologians and pastors. And the question was raised, when you think of Jesus, what word or phrase comes to mind? 
how would you describe Jesus? And they, they go around the room, and there's all these different answers about Jesus, and it's focused on the work of Jesus, and focused on the mission of Jesus, and how he's driven and devoted, and all these amazing descriptors. And when they got to Willard, you know what Willard said? Relaxed. When I think of Jesus, I see him as relaxed. That image confounds the Pharisees. Why is Jesus so relaxed? Because he wasn't living his life trying to outperform others. Because he wasn't busy trying to prove himself. He wasn't caught up trying to tally points with God. He lived in the reality of the Father's blessing over him at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was relaxed. And this is why on another occasion Jesus said to the crowds, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Would you come to me? Get away with me and you'll recover your life and I'll show you how to take a real rest. You walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. If you keep company with me, you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. That's the invitation of Jesus. And he's saying something similar here in our passage this morning. In, in response to the performing and comparing and rule-following approach of the religious leaders, Jesus does two things. I want you to notice first that Jesus does not do away with all religious practices. Jesus doesn't say, man, fasting is silly. There's no point to it. Same with the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't say, man, the Sabbath commandment is ridiculous. Jesus doesn't diminish the religious practices, which is what some people want to do with Jesus. Jesus doesn't allow us to do this. He, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There's a difference. Jesus didn't come to do away with religion, but what he does want to do is to press us deeper. He wants us to get down to the level of our motives, to the level of our hearts. Because two people can perform the same actions, but for very different reasons. And Jesus is concerned with more than what we're doing. He's concerned with why we're doing it. Why are you fasting? Why are you keeping the Sabbath? What are you really after? And so Jesus wants to take us down to the level of our motives, to the level of our hearts. But then the second thing that Jesus does is he completely recenters and refocuses religion. What Jesus says regarding his disciples not fasting is stunning. People come and ask him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? Notice what Jesus says. The wedding guests can't fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as the groom is with them, they can't fast. The time will come when the groom will be taken from them, and then they'll fast. Jesus says you don't fast on your wedding day. There are fast days and there are feast days. The wedding day is a feast day. How weird would it be to show up at a wedding 
They invite you to the reception, and there's no food. We're going to fast this out, y'all. You're like, no. I'm here to eat. Jesus says it's time to party. He calls himself the bridegroom. He says, I'm the center of attention. I'm the one that it's all about. This is a shocking metaphor if you're familiar with the Old Testament. It's actually not a messianic reference. It's a reference to Yahweh. Jesus makes himself Yahweh. He's saying that God's presence had come near in him. The whole point of fasting is to draw near to God. It's to seek the heart of God. And Jesus is saying, no need for that now because I'm right here, y'all. Now later when I depart, then it'll be time to fast. It'll be time again to to set things aside and to draw near to me. But he's saying the the time is not now because I'm here in your midst. The entire reason for fasting is realized in him. And he says something pretty similar about the Sabbath. He points back to this time in Israel's history when David and his men were on the run. And they came to Ahimelech the priest, and they, and they asked him for the bread of the presence, which was reserved only for the priests. Nobody else was allowed to have that bread. But because of who David was, he had an authority that essentially superseded the law. An exception was made because of who David was. And Jesus says, in essence, my disciples can pick grain and eat it, Because they're with me, and I hold that kind of authority. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming to have an authority like King David. He's he's saying essentially, the one who makes the command has the authority to supersede it. He says that command's mine anyway. But I think he's actually saying something even a little more than that. Because when Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath, some interpret that as Jesus saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the rest that you are looking for. Wholeness and flourishing and recuperation and replenishment are found in me. Relationship with God is found in me. The point of the Sabbath command was to enjoy relationship with God. It was to rest in God. It was to trust in him to provide. And Jesus now shows up and says, the way you fulfill that command is by believing in me. I am the way to relationship with God. It's not so much about a day of the week, it's about me. It's not about striving to meticulously keep the rules to prove yourself to God. You can rest from your earning. You can rest from your comparing. You can rest from your rule following. I am the way for your soul to find life and rest. Jesus is audaciously recentering and refocusing religion around himself. That is why in verse 21, Jesus uses this metaphor of of the the cloth and the wineskins. He says in verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. 
No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Two metaphors communicating the same reality. Namely, that you can't simply affix Jesus into status quo religion. You can't just sew him in to the existing old system. If you try to do that, it's going to tear the cloth and make a worse hole than what's already there. If you try to put new wine into old wineskins, what happens is in the fermentation process, the gases are released and it expands and it breaks the leather. It busts the wineskins. And what Jesus is saying is that if you, if, if all you try to do is sort of work Jesus into your workspace religious paradigm, it doesn't work. He's not a supplement to your religion. He's not a software update to your operating system. He's the point of religion. The entire system of religion is aimed toward him. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the substance. I am life itself. That's why Jesus would later tell some of these same religious leaders, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. You've built your entire lives around memorizing and meditating and keeping the scriptures, and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come so that you may have life. The sad irony of the Pharisees and the sad irony for many people today is that they would rather continue living in the emptiness and the anxiety of religion, of comparing and performing and rule-following their way through life, rather than finding life and rest in Jesus. But if you've come to the end of believing in yourself, if you're tired of pretending you're doing well and performing your way through life, if you're weary and worn out by religion, if you're heavy laden from doing better and trying harder, then Jesus says, come. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on, upon, upon you and learn from me. See, Jesus has done all of the heavy lifting, and so the yoke is light. His righteousness, his perfection, his obedience, his sacrifice is yours by faith. And so there's nothing left to prove. There's nothing to earn. Just come, and he'll show you the way to really live. And teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that in this moment, you would help us to admit that we are way more like the Pharisees than we realize or that we want to admit. 
that we have a propensity toward a works-based approach with you, that we have this tendency to play the game of comparison. We pretend and perform our way through life. And we fool ourselves in thinking that if we can just keep the rules good enough, we'll be accepted. Help us to repent of that and to receive the good news of the gospel that Jesus, you are inviting us to a new way of life where by faith what God the Father spoke over you, you speak over us. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That we can live in the reality of the Father's acceptance. That we can live in the reality of the Father's love. Not based upon how well we perform, but on the basis of our trust in you, Jesus. Help our faith. Set us free from the bondage and the anxiety of religion. Give us a gladness in you because of what you've done for us. We pray this in your name.